Welcome to the Rural Woman Podcast, a platform for women in agriculture, ranching, homesteading, and more to share their stories. I'm your host, Caitlin Dubin. Friends, we're approaching the two-year anniversary of the Rural Woman Podcast, and I want to celebrate by hosting a giveaway. You can win a Rural Woman prize pack with podcast gear and some other great goodies. To enter, all you have to do is take a screenshot of the episode that you're listening to right now and share it on your social media. Be sure to tag me at Wildrose Farmer and use the hashtag the Rural Woman Podcast. That's it. It's that easy. Contest is open from now until March 22nd, 2021. For more details, including what's included in the prize pack, head to today's show notes. Happy listening and good luck to you. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. Today, you'll meet Stephanie Shifkins. Stephanie is a mother, a wife, a shepherd, and a farmer who runs Apple Tree Farm, which is a small diversified farm in Willamette Valley, Oregon. Stephanie is a first-generation farmer in the U.S. but is no stranger to agriculture as she grew up on a large-scale produce farm in the southwest of France. Stephanie shares with us today how she spends her days tending to her small flock of Gotland sheep, growing food, flowers, eggs, producing wool, and managing a small farm stay on Apple Tree Farm. You all are going to love Stephanie's story, but before we get to that, I have a few more great items to share with you all that are available to you for the Rural Woman Podcast second anniversary giveaway. We are only a couple days away from the big day plus announcing the winner for the giveaway. So make sure you guys are taking a screenshot of whatever episode you're listening to and sharing it on the socials. Tag me at Wild Rose Farmer and use the hashtag the Rural Woman Podcast. Some great items that are available to win is a mozzarella cheese making kit from Naomi D. Ryder. She was on episode number 61. And this large mozzarella cheese making kit contains all of the ingredients that you're going to need, minus a couple of the fresh ingredients, because I don't think they would make it through the mail very well, <laughs> to make your own fresh mozzarella. That is so generous of Naomi, and I'm very jealous of whoever wins that, as well as there is a beautiful handmade pottery mug from Nicole Poburin from episode 88 from Four Acres Farm. This mug is absolutely beautiful. I've put it in the show notes for today's episode. So if you want to take a look at that, as well as my good friend Meg from Spruce and Clover has given some great items for the giveaway as well. You'll be getting a set of beeswax food wraps as well as some small reusable snack bags. I have been using Meg's beeswax wraps forever. They are amazing. And her snack bags are a great addition to any tractor cab for all of the snacks. So thank you so much, Meg, for including those in our giveaway. If you want to take a look at any of the items that I've mentioned over the last month that are available to win in the second anniversary giveaway, you can head to wildrosefarmer.com and look up the second anniversary giveaway or just head to today's show notes. I will be releasing a special episode on Monday, March 22nd in honor of the second year anniversary. So make sure 
If you are not already subscribed to the Rural Woman podcast, you hit that subscribe button wherever you listen and the episode will be downloaded directly to your phone. Without further ado, my friends, let's get to this week's episode with Stephanie. Hi, Stephanie. How are you? I'm good. Hi. I am so happy to have you here on the Rural Woman podcast today, and I'm excited to get to know you a bit better and to share your my listeners. Oh, thank you. I'm super excited to be here and to get to talk a little bit about what I'm excited about, you know, yes. most excited about. So, yeah. yeah. For sure. So, for the listeners familiar with you, give us your background of who you are and where you're from. So, let's see. I was born and raised in the southwest of France on a, what we call in Femme Maraîchère. Um, so, my dad grew a lot of produce and was kind of uh, instrumental in bringing into the valley where I grew up, you know, a way of growing food year-round with large pieces. And sort of the technology came from the Netherlands, and it was in the in the 80s. So I grew up with a lot of uh, produce rotations all the time, lettuce, eggplants, strawberries, some cereals as well, you know, corn, wheat, things like that. So yeah, I grew up around produce. And I also grew up on, we had horses. So I spent my childhood, you know, eating good food and riding horses. And then in my early 20s, I made my way to the United States. I married into an American family and came here for what I thought would be a time, but sort of fell in love with the Pacific Northwest. And we sort of settled in the Pacific Northwest in the city of Eugene, and we're still here. I started here in the U.S. as a teacher working for a French immersion program, but I always grew something in a garden somewhere. I always raised, at the very least, some chicken. I've always been passionate about growing food for my family, basically. So, you know, we've, we've moved locations, and we've started big gardens, and started raising animals and had to move. My husband went back to medical school at some point, so that was a big shift in our life. But about 10 years ago, we sort of settled this property here, just outside of Eugene, and we started, again, what we really like to do. So we acquired a Scotland sheep, and we started planting gardens and growing food and sort of learning how to make sense of all of these finding systems that work and to get to where we are now, which is a small, diversified farm. So maybe that tells you a little bit, you know, how I got here. That gives me so many things to break down with you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So are your family still farming in France? Yes, yes. The family farm is still very much existing. My my brother took on big operation, but my dad, you know, my dad still is kind of the mastermind. He's always had the ability of finding niches, things that work, you know, the next thing that will work in food and agriculture. And the thing that I love growing up with my my family on this farm is that there was a keen sense 
of not compromising the taste for the production. And that really got anchored into me. I mean, obviously my dad produced big scale, but he was really eager in producing a product that tasted good, you know, and we were kind of his, his, you know, everything we tested, everything, you know, we would just step out of that and go and pick a bowl of strawberries or harvest some cherry tomatoes or melons, you know, the first melons and see how they got better as this, you know, the season evolved. And yeah, one of the things that they do now is some, what would you call, I think here's some, you know, a version of hydroponic agriculture because it's a more efficient way of growing food. And it's also a little less wasteful at times. So yeah. The farm is still happening there. I tried to go there once a year. Of course, this year we uh, we haven't made it. <laughs> but uh, but I go there and I ask a lot of questions. You know, I've worked with my dad on getting here at some point. Can't really do that anymore. But I have some crops that I have been saving seed for years and that I keep planting. And they're still my dad's tomatoes. So things like that are really important for me. That is so, so. And the way that you describe your home farm and... It just sounds so romantic and so dreamy. And like you said, like <laughs> to not compromise the taste of this food. And I, I went to France one time for a very brief period, but mm-hmm. it is what they say. The food tastes better there for whatever reason. <laughs> it, I don't know what you do, but it is a good secret to have. And it is just so beautiful. Yeah. You know, the French love their food so much. You know, things have to taste, you know, right. otherwise why even bother working at growing it? Well, exactly. And why eat food that doesn't taste good? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 They do it right over there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they do it right here in the Pacific Northwest. I haven't gone very many places in the U.S. I really settled in the Pacific Northwest. And it's such a nice pocket of life, you know. Absolutely. uh, Yeah. Yeah. You've gone from one beautiful part of the world Mm -hmm. to another beautiful part of the world. Tell us more about your farm in the Pacific Northwest and what you produce on Apple Tree Farm. So it is what I call then a small diversified urban farm. We have about 10 acres and we run our sheep on about six or seven of these 10 acres with what we call intentional rotations and intentional grazing. So within a perimeter that is set around the farm, I move portable the time. They eat an area, whatever they don't eat, I mow and I move them to a different area. And this way I utilize the land that I have, you know, in the best that I can so that I don't have to import too much. For, for the sheep on the farm. They're very efficient grazers. And then I have about half of an acre of gardens, including a large hoop house, which allows me to increase my season by starting earlier in the spring and by, you know, having, I still have greens in my house that would probably, so I probably have maybe a month or two where there isn't a lot of fresh food. But the rest of the time, we're always able to, you know, forage something, harvest something in the greenhouse. So that's kind of the setup. I run a small flock of Gotland sheep. I have about 15 ewes that I breed, some lamb. I work my... Mm-hmm. So breeding program is pretty essential 
to the financial well-being of my farm, if I can put it this way. I try to work really hard on producing good quality products, so some use that will contribute to, you know, making more Gotland sheep and some good rams. So that's what I do. Raise these Gotlands. They're a multi, if I can put it this way, a multi-purpose animal for us. We use their wool, so all their wool, either as raw fleeces or I process it to, into yarn and roving. Out of this yarn and roving, I do a lot of added value products. The sheep that don't, that are not quite good enough quality for breeding, they get harvested to feed families in our communities and our families. And then the pelts also get harvested and uh, just and turn into garments. You know, people like to have purchase a pelt for a baby or we have multiple pelts around here that keep us warm in the winter. So, yes, they really, you know, contribute to a big part of our farm, of our farm income. And then I run a small CSA with what I grow in the gardens. And same, we just put out the food for about four months out of the year. And then the rest of the year, we have some storage crop things that people can buy either at farm days that we have or either they can just order and I do delivery. So, you know, these are some of the main components of the farm. I try to host to invite artists to come out here and do some some workshops. And, you know, I like to learn skills, the wool. So I'm very much a shepherd and not, I don't consider myself a fiber artist. So I'm always trying to learn more, uh, which helps me ultimately need better wool for my customers. I work a lot with kids. So I do, I try to host some camps or some farm days where the kids can come out and do some activities. And then my last sort of magic that I'm super excited about is a farm stay that we just started. And for me, that kind of something that I'm excited about developing and learning from and and uh, seeing what kind of guests we can get out on the farm and what people want to do, learn about or not, just relax. So that's kind of the last new venture for me on the farm. Well, and then when I'm not farming, then I teach French a little bit. So... These are my patients, <laughs> yeah, on and, and off the farm, yeah. That is a lot of things for your farm and yeah. off of the farm <laughs> teaching on top of that. So that is so great, Stephanie. And again, the way that you describe it, it could be the accent. <laughs> it just oh, sounds God. so dreamy and it just sounds so wonderful there. Oh, well, you know, it's it's a lot of hard work, but I mean, it's, you know, Farming is not all about being romantic and that and the good stuff. There's some hard hard days. There's a lot of hard work. There's a lot of work in the rain and in the mud. But ultimately, it's just such satisfying work for me. And the ability to feed my family really is, you know, what got it all started, you know. And the lingering desire just to kind of follow into the legacy of my my father and my my family you know sometimes i i don't i think that i don't know how to do other things in farming you know there's just 
something about farming in my everyday life, you know? Yeah, for sure. So tell us more about your Gotland sheep herd. So why did you decide breed versus any any other breed? Yeah, so it's interesting. It's actually our oldest son who we attended. The Black Sheep Gathering is a fairly well-known sheep show in the Pacific Northwest. It happens once a year, and we attended it over 10 years ago and, and saw our first Gotlands there. They're not native to the U.S., we are in what we call an upbreeding program. And my older son started doing some research and we identified her. And after researching it, it seemed like a good breed for us because it's a fairly small breed. They are very docile and very friendly. So they're great to have around kids. And then they produce this amazing fiber. And like a lot of dual purpose breeds, they are slow growing. So their meat is mild. And so they just work great for us, you know. All of the aspects just matched what we were looking for. Most of the time, I can handle the sheep by myself. You know, my husband helps me with the big work, giving some medical care. But on a day-to-day basis, I do all the work myself. I move them by myself. I handle them by myself. So they're just a really good breed of sheep. And they're beautiful. And they're not too common, which makes for a product that's, you know, just a little bit different. So I like that too. For sure. Like you said, absolutely beautiful. And their pelts are just the long curls and they're just so unique to look at. They're just very beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. The silver, the little silver, silver curly sheep from, uh, from Gotland. Yeah. We we love our gosh. For sure. You can help support the stories of women in agriculture to be shared through the Rural Woman podcast on Patreon. What is Patreon? It's a membership-based platform that helps fund and support creators like me to create and produce content like this that you all love. New to the Rural Woman podcast, Patreon is ad-free listening and patron-only bonus content and exclusive episodes. Learn more and join the patron gang today at patreon.com slash the rural woman podcast. So you mentioned before about building your breeding stock. What is something that you look for in your ewes and in your rams to keep them for breeding Yeah, so ideally, we evaluate the lambs at 120 days, about four months, and we sort of, so we evaluate their fleece structure, their wool. We want a nice three-dimensional curl with as little cross fiber as possible. Cross fiber, I could define it for non-sheep people, has kind of the fluff little wool pieces, you know, that might be intertwined among the locks. So we don't want too much of that. And then we uh, want a curl that is nice and even from the from the front of the sheep to the back, all the way into the back. And then we look at their color too, their color. So they range in color. They're they're born jet black for the most part. And then, you know, starting two weeks after they're born, but it can take longer graying. And so there is a range between black and the very 
rare white goblin. But for the most part, it's a different shades of gray. And so at four months, we like to see that they are in gray throughout. And we also look at their conformation. You know, we want them to have a good-sized carcass so that they can be, you know, able to carry lambs and lamb. And so that, you know, the ones that we use for to feed our family have a good-sized carcass in them. So these are the criterias that I use. I try to follow criteria that the the that people use to breed a good Swedish Scotland. And yeah, I just do my best to keep the best in the in breeding flock. And the rest, you know, either, as I said, get to feed a family. Some of them are sold as fiber pets. So people who don't want to breed, but they just want really lovely wool. Because even if they're lacking a little bit of confirmation or even if they're lacking, you know, the evenness in color and curl that we might, you know, thrive for in the breeding flock, they still have really nice wool, you know, that people can harvest it's a year and make beauty out of. So that's kind of how I, and you know, it's, it's, it's a young breed in general here. And it's also, I am, you know, with a breed, I've been raising these Scotlands for the last decade. So not, not that long. So I'm also still learning and I surround myself with a lot of people who know more, you know, I, I read, I watch videos, I talk to people and I have more than I do come and look at my sheep, tell me what they think, you know, if I'm on the right course and things like that. So yeah, that's kind of the aim with this evaluation of four months. Yeah. So you are shearing them twice a year then, correct? Yeah, we can, uh, we do that with the Gotlands. We get our best fleeces in the late fall, or actually in the fall, you know, any time in October, early November, we shear them then. And then we get another fleece before lambing, technically. And the fleece that we get before lambing is, the quality is a little debatable, mostly because they have been inside more. So there is a little bit more vegetable matter in their wool. Uh, makes it a little less optimal to be able to sell it as a very clean raw fleeces. So I actually end up retaining a lot of these fleeces and sending them for processing into yarn and roving making products for the farm store with them. And about how much fleece do you weigh it in pounds? Yeah, so it really depends how dense it is. But, uh, you know, this is, I'd say, they are between four and five pounds. And mature fleeces, it really varies. But the fleeces that I have as raw fleeces, I remove many, many parts of it because I'm basically only selling the best for a top price. So I'll actually keep some areas that are not, that I don't, you know, that are not included in the price per pound. And then I will clean it myself and I will use it here on the farm to do crafts with the kids or even to do some products for the farm. I don't include them in, in the price of the fleece. So yeah, by the time I sell a fleece, a really nice quality fleece, sometimes there's only, you know, three or four pounds left on a fleece that was much heavier to start with. Right. Well, that's amazing that you can use so much of that product on one sheep. Yeah, I know. I know. It's amazing. And twice a year. And 
you know, year after year. So, yeah, it's pretty amazing. For sure. So can you tell the listeners kind of what the different characteristics be from the yarn that you're getting from the Gotland sheep versus if you were to yeah. a regular sheep, a blue face Lester or whatnot? Yeah, yeah. So I will start by telling the listeners, as I said, this is something that I am still very much learning. In fact, this morning I had a meeting with a shepherd on the East Coast who also raises Gotland sheep and who has much more experience with processing yarn and using. And I had all kinds of questions for her about how to produce a best, a better quality yarn in my farm store. But I'd say, so, you know, it is different from a fine wool yarn like a merino because it is a curl, a long wool and not a crimp and it is not a fine wool. So if I compare it to a merino, it's a little bit, especially the non-limb fleeces, you know, it's a little bit coarser. The thing that you find in the yarn from the Gotland is a lot of luster, you know, this shiny, uh, this shiny look to the to the yarn and that's also what I was discussing with my friend this morning you know how how to process it so that you retain this this luster so a lot of the time when I went to the mill I will ask for a little bit of I will blend the yarn so it'll be 80% of the gotland and then I will add 20% of another wool so that cohesion to the yarn. And I think knitters appreciate that. You know, the difference, if I can in a very simplistic way explain the difference, if you look at a hat, for instance, after you've worn a hat a few times, you know, a hand-knitted hat, if it has a lot of, if the yarn has cohesion, then, you know, the, the base of the hat still looks the same. And if it's lacking that cohesion, then it starts sort of expanding a little bit and it it doesn't fit as fit as well and i hope that makes sense what i'm trying to say here but basically the reason why we blend it is because we want a little bit more cohesion and because the gotlin yarn by itself is not as resilient as other yarn can be so that is kind of how i can explain it knowing that you know again i am still very much learning all of that, and that there are some, you know, shepherds of Gotland sheep that that could probably explain it better than I just did. So, yeah, I hope that's helpful still. It's a very good basic level understanding that I'm sure me and the listeners both appreciate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so tell us what kind of accessories and things that you have going yeah. on in your shop. Yeah, so in the farm store at any you know, when I have them available, I have some pelts, of course, and I carry yarn and I carry roving. Um, so, you know, obviously purchase these. I always try to have some dryer balls made from the yarn of our flock, from the wool of our flock. So some dryer balls. I um, try to make some uh, little gnomes and keep them stocked. People seem to like the gnomes made with uh, the long curls and the uh, felt from the from our sheep. Um, we have some hats, some hand uh, knitted hats 
that I don't have time to knit myself or even, you know, the the good enough skill to knit a consistent product. But I work with a young woman up north. She makes some really nice hats for us. You know, a few products that are not necessarily witted, but, you know, some cups and tote bags that we try to make in keeping with the theme of our farm, the logos and the garland sheep. I also, every year, do some winter wreaths, flowers that I dry from my garden and flowers that I also get from other local farmers. That is becoming kind of a nice product from my farm store. I seem to have found a style that I like and that my customers like. And in between a holiday wreath and a winter wreath, so something that sort of lasts beyond the holiday season. And I really like to make the wreath. After the really big farming summer, fall season, I just fall into my little wreath-making routine in the winter. I to you, and I really like that. So, yes, and some, you know, some amount of knitted product that uh, I like to work with, a few knitters, and uh, we'll occasionally have a shawl or a beautiful garment knitted that I make available for for my customers. I just did a batch with a few blankets that I I wanted to make some room and I also made a couple available to our customers. And then, you know, we sell shares of lambs, but these never really come through the farm store. They go directly to the customers. And, yeah, I'm trying to think... I make some little kits so that kids can make little owls. So, you know, with felt and wool and a little bit of knitting, maybe kind of a nice little uh, kit that people like to get. Oh, and the felted soap, too, are kind of a nice, nice little gift that everybody can get. And I feel good about making them, too, because then both soap and not plastic bottles and liquid soap, you know? So. Absolutely, yeah waste not want not right so yeah that's so great and and yeah and then the raw fleeces of course and some some amount of you know washed curls and things like that so these are things that we that we offer Yeah. yeah that's a lot of things Stephanie that's so great that you're able to produce all of that from your farm and other local farms next to you yes so that's yes, great yes yeah and collaboration is a big is a big a big part of how I like to farm so I I like to work with other small farmers and, you know, I'll include some some things in my CSA from farmers sometimes. My egg CSA is pretty much all sourced out to another uh, women-owned farm, you know, so I, I really like to work these relationships and make other people work in my community, so... You have heard me tell you all about the amazing benefits that come along with being a patron of the Rural Woman podcast through Patreon, but I wanted to share with you a few testimonials from the patron gang themselves. Patron Bev and Sam from the Drink and Farm podcast write, we love supporting the Rural Woman podcast because farm stories matter. No matter how or why you farm, your story has the potential to inspire, give new ideas, and bring a different perspective to another human. And those are the gifts that keep on giving. Our stories are what allow us to connect, celebrate, and grieve with each other, supporting that brings our hearts joy. Plus, we think Caitlin is pretty awesome. 
Join the ladies from the Drink and Farm podcast in supporting the stories of women in agriculture through the Roll Woman podcast, starting at $2 a month on Patreon. Visit wildrosefarmer.com to learn more. So let's talk more about your CSA. The year 2020 has come and gone, and it was a wild year for a lot of people. But one thing that I know is people who had direct-to-consumer farms did wonderful this year because there were so many more people who were interested in purchasing local food. So tell us what that looked like for your CSA in the year 2020. Yeah, yeah. So, you know has many other farms for us it i mean for me really on a on a very simplistic way it meant that i i couldn't i couldn't sign up everybody you know and some people to other farms which is great so that's kind of a you know that was kind of sad but i'm you know i am also a pretty much a one woman ranch so i have part of my job is also to know what my limits are what i can do and what i cannot do so, and the other important things is that if a neighbor comes down the hill and wants a basket, I want to be able to sell them or give them a basket of produce. That is important for me to feed my direct community. So, you know, I, in the spring, I take, uh, I took order in the spring of 2020. I, people, I do a cafeteria style. I do not have a problem. So it's a little bit less of a commitment for people. So for instance, if people know, and 2020 was different because people didn't really travel, but if a family knows that they get on the month of July and they don't want to sign up for the month of July, I'm okay with that because I can always give somebody else their CSA share for that for that month. Somebody else will sign up. So basically in the spring people will sign up for they can sign up for pro flower CSA and they can sign up for whichever month they want from uh, beginning of June through the end of September. So June, July, August and September that's when I run. And by the time all the slots are filled, then I filled up my CSA basically and I have uh, it set up as a pickup at the farm or a pickup in town and uh, yeah that seems to be pretty well for us <laughs> so you know hopefully 2021 will you know we'll be able to fill those shares as well but yes 2020 was a, a great year for you know to sell produce from the farm lots lots of people yeah, for sure. Well, and good for you to know your limit and when to say no, because yeah. I know there was a lot of people who maybe bit off a little bit more than they could do when it came to signing up yeah. members. And it's always yeah. kind of a risk to know, like, if you're going to get the crops that you are expecting to feed all of these people. So right, I, right. Yeah. So I think right. what you did was very smart. Yeah, just knowing the limit and and, you know, I'm guilty sometimes of overcommitting myself, but I am getting better at it, you know. I am getting better. And, you know, the experience of doing it year after year just, you know, better. There's, it really means what it means, you know. So Absolutely. Absolutely. So I know you spend a big part of your day with your kids and teaching. Yeah. So tell us more about having the kids and all of the all of the good stuff. So the day like, you know, the school day is 
in the morning, I always do my chores early, so pretty much the kids are still sleeping. And actually, uh, right now, Peter is the only one at home. I have older kids, too. So Peter is still sleeping. And I always refer to the kids because when it's not COVID times, I always have to run. I love it, you know. It's just part of why I set all this up, you know, to make uh, life experiences for other people's children, too. So if the chores are done early in the morning and then Peter gets up and we get started with school and usually I block off my morning for school and then we have lunch and we might do other things in the afternoon but for the most part the afternoon we do different uh, activities, you know, we go to the barn and ride horses once a week, once or twice a week. I work that I need to do here on the farm. It's a time when he comes out with me and we'll jump on the trampoline or play in the water and the mud that there is around right now and do things like that. And then, so I'd say that I spend out, I go down to the barn or to the greenhouse or the garden area about three times a day. And then the rest of the time, it's a combination of school, entertaining, you know, little people, or teaching. And all my teaching is also done early in the morning. So I get up really early to fit all that in, and, and I get started with school around 9. So by 9, I have, I have taught all the, my students, and I do it Monday through Friday, so a few each day. Yeah, that's kind of how I have it set up. Well, you're a morning person then. (laughs) Yeah, I am a morning person. Yes, I do love to get up and be the only one up in the morning for a little while at least. (laughs) Right, I am the exact same way. Yeah. So it sounds like you you mentioned this experience and this, it's really coming through that you want your farm to be a Mm. life experience, not only for you and your family, but for others. So tell us more about your exciting adventure and your new farm stay. The farm stay was, you know, I've been, I've been reading about farm stays for a long time and I have gone to farm stays, you know, in France, we have them too. Yeah. They're just such a, such an amazing opportunity for people who are city dwellers to, you know, come and spend a couple of days or even a few hours and see how how the food ends up in stores, you know, how the food ends up in their plates, you know. And so by doing this farm stay, I'm, I mean, there is the opportunity for them to do a very small scale, you know, what it requires really from, you know, the seeding to the harvesting to the processing. Like I... You know, all these steps, you know, I can't assume that everybody knows how it happens because I have come to, I have come to learn that a lot of people don't, you know, and because I grew up in a farm where we always did that, that was, that is my life, but it's not for everybody. And so I'm excited for this farm stay because here lays an opportunity to share a little bit of that with people. And I am really aware that all I do here is on a very small scale. Things are very different with, you know, indulging and and things like that. But the truth is that if people see what I do here, then basically anybody could take any of the skills and make it happen, even in their own little city yard. You know, it's like, it's, it's amazing. 
I have had my time where I have lived in the city and I always have had a garden. I've always grown some amount of food. So I hope that we can share some of this. Obviously, sharing the love of the sheep and how to run a small flock of sheep and how to, you know, where a sweater comes from. <laughs> I mean, here we literally, you know, we raise the wool, we shear the wool, we send it for processing, it's knitted, and we wear the wool. You know, the whole story is right here. So I've been to just be able to do that. And I think Eugene is also a really cool place to do it at because there's, it's just such a nice place to live, you know. So hopefully people will want to visit us. Well, I know I want to come visit you. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, and I think like speaking uh, from the perspective of the larger farm, I think sometimes it's misleading that the larger farm is order to operate versus the smaller farm because we do have the big equipment we do have staff most of the time and that kind of stuff when it's just a one-woman show where your husband's able to help you once in a while with the bigger those little jobs really add up to a hard day's work yeah no I mean you know I think there is again there is it's you know complexity at all level you know and yeah, shows, you know, even I look at the farm, the family farm in France and the amount of infrastructure and the amount of, you know, equipment that we need, you know, to grow this. But, you know, it's complex too, you know, and it certainly is here too, you know. When I turn a bed, part of the reason why I can grow so much on my small farm, on my small setup is because I do a lot of rotations, so I'm constantly turning beds and starting new new crops. And but when I turn a bed, most of the time I turn it by hand. Right. Uh, because I do it a little bit at a time. So I have I have come to you know, I have systems that work for me and for my setup and now to as I told you earlier, you know, feed a certain amount of families and I have learned not to over commit myself. And so it's all part of, you know, learning the systems, you know, and how they all feed into each other to make it work. For sure. Stephanie, it has been so lovely chatting with you this afternoon. I am, I just love what you're doing on your farm and everything that you guys are producing from there. My last question for you, what is the most rewarding part for you, two-part question, of being a farmer and also being a shepherd? Yeah, right. Well, I was going to say one of the most rewarding part of being a farmer is actually being a shepherd. I mean, these fuck off is, you know, they are such an instrumental part of my life, you know. The the story of one's uh, one story is intricate, is incomplicated, and mine is just as intricate as anybody else. And this farm and this flock of sheep has been my my therapy. You know, I have had some hard, some traumatic events, and they have really helped me move forward. You know, there's just no other way of saying it. And the dream part of being a farmer is feeding my family, knowing where my food comes from. I can't say I still buy a certain amount of, you know, cold cuts and lunch meat for my family. But I can say that I 
I don't need that for myself personally, self from what I produce here. So the meat that I eat is basically the lambs that that I feed my family, you know. So I know exactly where everything comes from. And that is amazing. So, yes, growing food and raising a flock of sheep, it's my life. You know, after my children and my family, it's really my life. So, yeah. <laughs> Those are all good things. It has been so wonderful chatting with you. For the listeners who would like to connect with you after the show, where can they find you online? So we are on Instagram at Gotlands at Apple Tree Farm. We are on on the web at Apple Tree Farm Gotland. And we are on at Apple Tree Farm. So all these are good ways. And I love, especially, you know, now that I am at home all the time, I love, love to hear from people. I love to just apply to little messages. It's kind of my way of connecting with people still because I am always on the farm. Absolutely. Well, and I will put all of those in the show notes so people can find you and connect with you. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you so much for taking the time to hear the story a little bit, you know, of the small farm. So I really appreciate and it was lovely. Thanks for listening to the Rural Woman Podcast. A special thanks to our Patreon executive producer, Sarah Reedner of Happiness by the Acre, and to my editor, Max Hofer. For show notes, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com. You can connect with me on social media using the handle at wildrosefarmer on all platforms. If you love the show, make sure you're subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts, plus share it with a friend. We'll see you next time.